The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. Hey there, and welcome back to another season of the podcast, A People's History of Kansas City, from KCUR Studios. I'm Suzanne Hogan. This podcast is all about telling and celebrating stories of people in the area who have shaped this place. Stories of folks who lots of times have been written out of history or who weren't properly recognized in their time for their contributions, for their bravery and vision. History happens every day. Nothing was going to stop her. You just realize that every little action that we take now is gonna influence generations to come. Last season, we learned about a Wyandotte trailblazer who broke barriers to protect a sacred burial ground, an endangered German dialect being kept alive in rural Missouri, and how a seemingly psychic dog lifted people's spirits during the Great Depression. If you haven't already, go back and give those episodes a listen. And if you feel like it, you should write us a review and rate us and share these stories with your friends. This season, we're going to tackle probably one of Kansas City's most iconic stories. So you could say that the Kansas City uh, style of barbecue comes from Henry Perry. And we're going to hear about an amazing Missouri woman who was born a slave and took unprecedented actions to defend freedom. And she wanted to find a way to earn her way. And someone said, hey, you can earn your way by being in the service. And because she didn't look like a woman, per se, they assumed automatically she was a man. This episode is all about getting to the bottom of how Kansas City, Missouri got its name and to clarify some of the folklore around it. You know, and I travel and and people will say, uh, where are you from? Oh, I'm uh, I'm from Kansas City. Oh, I've never been to Kansas. (laughs) Even President Trump incorrectly congratulated the great state of Kansas after the Kansas City, Missouri Chiefs won the Super Bowl last year. People who live here know how common it is for outsiders to get it all confused because, well, there's more than one Kansas City. How many times have you had to explain it to people? They ought to have it printed up and just hand it to them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a little handbill. So we're going to clear all that up. We're going to hear from legendary local broadcaster Walt Bodine. Night beat in Kansas City, 710 on your radio. This is Walt Bodine. And we're going to get to the bottom of a local urban legend about how Kansas City, Missouri, was almost named something completely different, like Possum Trot. I guess it's possible Possum Trot and Port Fonda could have been the case. Okay, so this is an anecdote I've known about as a person who's from here and grew up here, but I never really knew if it was true. I don't remember where I first heard this story from originally, but I've always just kind of known that Kansas City was almost named Possum Trot. I think it's the story that kind of stuck with me because I always liked the idea of it. One, just thinking back about the origin of the city that I love and the whole idea of naming a place and what that would have been like. And two, because I like possums. So I always just thought it was kind of fun to entertain the idea that I could have been from a city named Possum Trot. Early on, I even tried to name this podcast Possum Trot. But there was like this collective groan that people made when I pitched the idea to the newsroom. So we decided to come up with something else. I got a great name for you. How about Rabbitville? How about Possum Trot? 
Recently, my friend Matt Reeves, who works at the Kansas City Public Library's Missouri Valley Room, got asked a question. It was submitted through the Kansas City Star's KCQ series, where folks ask librarians to get to the bottom of a local curiosity, and then they write an article with the answer. It's a cool series, you should check it out. But this question came from a reader named Helen Higgins about a story she learned in middle school about why voting is so important. As a third grader at Belinda Elementary School in the 90s, we learned that early on when Kansas City was a small town, the traders and merchants of the town voted on what to name their growing city. And Kansas City won by just one vote over Possum Trot. There you go. Every vote counts. Can you imagine having to tell people you live in Possum Trot? Ew. Civic responsibility is established. So, is it true? Was Kansas City really just one vote away from being named Possum Trot? My job was to get to the bottom of this question. Was this true? So Matt Reeves, our fearless librarian, whose job often takes him on deep dives into old public records or back into the history of people's houses, took on the challenge. And that's one of the my favorite parts of this job is that I get to go on a lot of uh, wild goose chases looking for answers to things. And it was a wild goose chase, one that took him into a deep rabbit hole of history books and documents looking for references to Rabbitville and Possum Trot. I know, lots of animal references there. We know voting is important, but how close were we to being called Possum Trot? Was it really just one vote away? The breakthrough came in the most unlikely of places. And what would it mean if things had happened differently? Reporting from City Hall in downtown Possum Trot, I'm Lisa Rodriguez. And the weather in Possum Trot today, sunny, breezy, will reach a high of 72 degrees. It's incredible, the Possum Trot Royals have won the World Series. We're going to dive deep and clear up some of the confusion behind the story of how this city got this name. And how do stories that we share about our past influence the way we think about the present? It's the search for the truth in just a minute. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Wanna hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance, and boy, it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org slash radioactive. So library goers of a certain generation will remember this sound. It's the sound of microfilm. Before computers and storage clouds, this was a way that newspapers and other sources were preserved. They'd put all types of documents onto this film that you could scroll through in a machine. And it was on microfilm that librarian Matt Reeves found the only primary source that exists about the day that Kansas City, Missouri got its name. As we'll learn, history can be a muddy thing. So first-hand sources like this can really help out. You could say the story starts in 1831, when French farmer Gabriel Prudhomme, who owned the land surrounding what is now the River Market in downtown Kansas City, Missouri, died unexpectedly. He died in a uh, barroom scuffle. 
and then his family uh, decided to sell off that property. A trader just a few miles south from the Missouri River named John McCoy, the son of a missionary, was operating an outpost called Westport, a place where recently resettled American Indian tribes and settlers heading west on different trails could trade and stock up on goods and supplies. McCoy was a businessman and thought creating a township that had access to the Missouri River would help grow his business. So after some legal struggles, he got together a town company, which was a group of about 14 guys with money who bought the land of what is now considered downtown Kansas City, Missouri in 1838. The price tag? $4,220. This new town company, a group all made up of white men, retired to a small cabin owned by a guy named One-Eyed Ellis. And they're trying to figure out what to name this new town or city they hope to build. You can imagine they're sitting in this uh, small frontier uh, cabin talking about what to name this property. As you're imagining these things, you'll, you'll do what some historians and later on what one of the key figures in this story does, which is you start to envision them sitting there and maybe there's a fire going and maybe uh, they're passing around whiskey or talking about something, right? Like your imagination just kind of runs wild with all of these frontier uh, notions. It's kind of like those Wild West frontier scenes you see in movies. So yeah, your imagination could start to run a little wild. One-Eyed Ellis's cabin, right? I mean, for goodness sakes, he's, he's called One-Eyed Ellis, you know? John McCoy, our Westport entrepreneur, is the only guy who wrote about what happened during that time at One-Eyed Ellis's cabin back in 1838. He wrote about it almost 40 years after the event took place in the newspaper. That's the article Matt Reeves found on Microfilm. In that account, there is no mention of a fire or whiskey being passed around or a saloon piano. I added that detail. But here's McCoy's account of what happened. So the 14 of them are hanging out at one eyed Ellis's cabin. McCoy, James McGee, Abraham Fonda. He's sort of a dandy. That's a man who placed a lot of importance on fashion and appearance. He was infamous amongst the other sort of rugged frontiersman types for Fonda wearing a top coat with tails and, you know, writing down that his occupation was being a gentleman. And so a lot of the other people living in this area uh, didn't care for him particularly. So they start talking about what to name this place, the city they hope to build, promote, and make money off of. Abraham Fonda, being a gentleman and being a dandy, would really like to name the place Port Fonda. And he proposes that as the name for the city. This is not popular. No one likes this idea for two reasons. One, Fonda had tried to sneakily buy the land beforehand at a much lower price. So the group kind of resented him for that. And the suggestion was really all about him. And that gets the big thumbs down. So then, uh, according to McCoy, they try and figure out another name, and they do what people have done trying to figure out names for a long time. They grab an old, in McCoy's word, an old Noah's Webster's dictionary and start flipping through that and kind of being, oh, this thing or oh, that, or what do you think about this? This conversation is just kind of going on and on and they can't really uh, you know, come to an answer. And then at this point, Squire Bowers, who has been sitting over in the corner, we might imagine, listening to all these property owners or new property owners try and come up with the name of their city, chimes in and says, I've got a name for you. 
For the record, Squire Bowers is not part of the township group. He's just a guy hanging out at One-Eyed Ellis' cabin. McCoy later refers to him as a hard-scrabbled character who lived in a hollow. Here's Matt reading directly from McCoy's account of the event. Old Squire Bowers, he writes, a dry old speculator who lived down in the bottoms a mile or two, facetiously suggested rabbit bill or possum trot, but was treated with silent contempt. The struggle ended finally with the adoption of Kansas City by the skin of its teeth. Matt is quick to note that it was actually first named Kansas, or the town of Kansas, after the nearby Caw River, a name that is connected to the Caw Nation and Kansas people. But where's this one vote business? And it doesn't even sound like Possum Trot was an actual consideration. Before we tackle that, let's spend a moment here with the name they did decide on, the town of Kansas, or what became Kansas City. If you live in a town called Kansas City, maybe ask, where did the name Kansas come from? Like I mentioned earlier, there is a lot of confusion around the name Kansas City because there's more than one. There's Kansas City, Missouri, Kansas City, Kansas. There's North Kansas City, which, yes, is its own city. We, as uh, folks who live in the metro, are keenly aware of which communities are on the Kansas side, whether that's in you know Johnson County or Wyandotte County, and which communities are on the Missouri side. And are they north of the river? Are they in North KC? Like we, we know all of this stuff, and it kind of matters to us. Matt Reeves is a proud Midwesterner, too, but makes the point that it matters to us but it really doesn't matter that much to folks who don't live here. But I did a People's History trivia event last year, and I was surprised how many people living here got this question wrong. Which place was incorporated as a city first? Kansas City, Kansas, or Kansas City, Missouri? Do you know the answer? Because this is a history podcast, and this comes up so much— Let's just do a real quick 101 on what was going on here long before McCoy and other settlers got to One-Eyed Ellis' cabin. Because it does matter. It's kind of pitiful that more Americans don't know about it. Heather Payne is of the Oto, Missouri tribe. She says it's kind of frustrating that people don't know or try to know more about the Native peoples who were here in this area before colonization. And the role that Native tribes have culturally and historically had on place names across the country today. Because most of the states in this country, if you actually look at it, they need to ask, where did the name of that state come from? You know, most of the rivers, location places, and that's all over America. So many states, rivers, and landmarks have deep connections to indigenous peoples and languages. And unfortunately, it's a history that's not often told. The name Missouri, which is the name of this state and the longest river in the country, is connected to the Oto Missouri tribe. Oto Missouri language specialist Kenitha Greenwood gives a couple other examples. Nebraska, Nebraska is a flat water. Um, and then Topeka, Kansas is Dopeke, like because that's good potatoes where they used to dig potatoes. We are going to do a deeper dive into the history and influence of the Oto Missouri people in a future episode. And if you want to hear more about how a lot of eastern tribes like the Wyandotte ended up in the state of Kansas, check out the first episode of A People's History of Kansas City, all about lawyer Lida Conley. 
But I'd like to share with you this land acknowledgement statement that Melody Delmar with the Missouri Humanities Council put together in honor of the peoples who are here before Kansas City was maybe almost named Possum Trot and Kansas or Missouri were states. Missouri Humanities respectfully acknowledges that the land on which we reside has cultural significance for many Native peoples, including the Osage, Oto, Missouri, Stock and Fox, Iowa, Kansas, Illini, Kickapoo, Peoria, Shawnee, Delaware, Sioux, Yankasha, and Cherokee. We are ever mindful that these peoples continue a sacred relationship with the lands we occupy, and we both recognize and appreciate their integral contributions to the land we currently call home. It's important for every person living in Missouri and Kansas, in whichever Kansas City or surrounding suburb, to know that these place names have indigenous roots and to recognize that this land belonged to many peoples before colonization. I recognize that each tribe's history and story is very different and nuanced. But basically, to kind of sum it up, before Westport founder John McCoy came along, who is often considered the father of Kansas City, this place, that is now Kansas City, was a place because of the Kaw and Missouri River, existing trails and native peoples that was already a crossroads in many regards. It was an important intersection and trade route between many tribes and later with colonizers. The Louisiana Purchase happened in 1803. Basically, France sold the area that is now Missouri and included a big part of our country's midsection to the newly independent United States. This purchase nearly doubled the size of the U.S., a nation that was only a little over 20 years old. And it's important to be clear that France sold their claim to the land, not the actual territory, which still belonged to numerous tribes who lived here. Matt Reeves is quick to bring this point up when we think about Kansas City's founding father story. We're often celebrating this white story of movement and expansion, but there's a parallel story of forced relocation and oppression that needs to be uh, told as well. By 1831, where our original hunt behind the name Possum Trot began, when French farmer Prudhomme died in the barroom scuffle, the state of Missouri was about 10 years old. At this point, a lot of regional Native tribes were being forced to assimilate or move to reservations, as Native Eastern tribes were also being forced off their land to this area. On the one side, there are white immigrants who are choosing to go out here to try and stake claims out in the West. And on the other side, there are a lot of uh, indigenous peoples who are being forcibly routed through Kansas City on their way to uh, what would become Indian reservations in the Kansas area, and then Indian territories, which we now know today as the state of Oklahoma. So to bring it back to One-Eyed Ellis's cabin and the naming of Kansas City, in 1838, the area that is now downtown Kansas City, Missouri, was bought and named the town of Kansas after the nearby Kaw River, a name we can thank the Kaw Nation or Kansas people for. This town of Kansas, in Missouri, eventually incorporated in 1853. The state of Kansas was established after that, before the Civil War in 1861. And the town of Kansas City, Kansas, was incorporated a little over a decade after that, in 1872. So to answer my own trivia question, the town of Kansas in Missouri was incorporated first, before Kansas was even a state. I know it's still kind of confusing, but that's the general timeline. And I'm not even going to get into the whole North Kansas City bit. But with all these different Kansas cities, you start to wonder, 
Could we have come up with something a little different? I mean, how close in actuality were we to Port Fonda, Rabbitville, or Possum Trot? Matt Reeves believes, based on McCoy's account, that old Squire Bowers was offering Rabbitville and Possum Trot mostly as a joke. He's trolling them. He's like, hey, you guys can't decide. I got a great name for you. How about Rabbitville? How about Possum Trot? But if Possum Trot was the thing that was never taken all that seriously, how did we get to this ad that ran in the Kansas City Star for Possum Trot Fest, an event that used to happen in the 1980s that was a benefit for historic preservation? I'll have Matt read the ad. Why Possum Trot? Question mark, question mark. And goes on to explain. If One-Eyed Ellis had had his way back in 1838 when the Founding Fathers met in his cabin to name the rapidly growing riverfront settlement, we'd be living in Possum Trot, Missouri. Possum Trot lost by just one vote to the town of Kansas. As the town grew, the name was suitably changed to Kansas City. So here we have an even further corruption, right? So now it's not Squire Bowers that John McCoy says was the one promoting this, but One-Eyed Ellis. As you can see, the story is getting even more muddy. And where is this whole one-vote business coming from? McCoy says the struggle ended finally with the adoption of Kansas City, quote, by the skin of its teeth, and that it was a suggestion met with silent contempt. How did all this get started? Well, it's kind of like the game of telephone. Well, you know how these things start. One guy tells another guy something, and then he tells two friends. And they tell two friends, and they tell their friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. You know how these things go. And it turns out my connection to this person behind this whole one-vote possum trot story, which is a great story, is far deeper than I could have ever imagined. Okay, so like I said, Matt Reeves dug through history books and articles looking into the origin of how the town of Kansas in Missouri got its name in 1838. And then he had a breakthrough. The breakthrough came in the most unlikely of places. Matt Reeves had scored through public records and dozens of local history books, trying to figure out any mention of this one vote possum trot claim. And then he found this thin green book called Through the Years in Kansas City, a promotional history book published by Stein and McClure Funeral Homes in 1961. Yeah, so this doesn't talk about voting. It says that the city only narrowly missed being called Possum Trot, but that's the first time that we find in the game of telephone that historians play that someone's saying it was almost Possum Trot. And then we find that there are two people who have been credited with doing the research and writing uh, for this promotional history from Stein and McClure. The two folks there are Gene Glenn and Walt Bodine. Kansas Indians will know is a famous uh, sort of rock on tour of Kansas City history and a promoter of all things uh, Kansas City. Okay, for those of you who don't know, Walt Bodine is a local broadcast legend. He had a career working in radio that lasted over 60 years, when radio was still a fledgling medium. My first job in radio was as the producer for The Walt Bodine Show on KCUR. This was the theme that would play every morning at 10. Long before I met Walt in the early 2000s, he had already had a long and accomplished broadcast career. He covered the disastrous flood in 1951, the devastating Ruskin Heights tornado of 1957. 
he had a way with bringing scenes to life with words. For the dead of the May 20th tornado in suburban Kansas City, it was the end of the world. For the injured, it was a painful beginning. For the unhurt survivor, it became a lasting memory, a tattoo upon the mind that nothing would ever completely remove. He covered the riots that broke out in Kansas City after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. I believe we have more in common as human beings walking on two legs, bleeding red blood, needing food, uh, needing love, needing the things that we do much more in common than we have apart. And he hosted tons of different shows throughout the years. This is Walt Bodine. And this is Gene Glenn. And this program is Conversation. What do you say to that? What do you think of that, Larry? Time for Conversation with Walt Bodine and Gene Glenn. Perhaps his most popular show was a late-night call-in show called Night Beat. Night Beat in Kansas City, 710 on your radio. This is Walt Bodine. Where one time, a guy called in who lived in an apartment in Midtown and said he had a pet lion. Walt was skeptical, so the guy, Mr. Weber, and his lion came into the studio. Oh, brother, if I can only tell you what I'm looking at, well, I can. Play by play, Mr. Mr. Weber believes in togetherness with this uh, lioness, and so while I was about to do the commercial, uh, Mr. Weber um, got on the floor with the lion. Mr. Weber has just been eaten entirely up alive. No. Down on the floor with the lion, flat on his back. And then the lion came over and with its big face looked down into his face, which is just a nice, normal, average human face. Or was up till just lately. It's the sort of thing you'd see in any studio any night. I mean, All of this to say, Walt had a great sense of humor and a unique sense for how to make things interesting and to create a real relationship with listeners. He was a great mentor and friend to me personally. He died in 2013 when he was 92 years old. When I learned from Matt that Walt might be the culprit behind this whole one-vote possum trot business, I couldn't believe it. In addition to his impressive broadcast career, Walt also wrote many books about his own life and Kansas City history. One of them was published in 1976. It's called Right Here in River City, A Portrait of Kansas City. It's a popular history with lots of cinematic and theatrical details that do not have any sources cited. One-eyed Ellis, unaccustomed to such important goings-on, was doing what he could to help things along. He passed around a jug. Here's an excerpt. In this version, One-eyed Ellis is hosting the event. With the port fond of flare-up disposed, the conferees were getting warmed up inside and out. The groping for a name was getting a little bit wild, too. How about Rabbitville, a trapper offered. The matter was thoughtfully considered, debated for a spell, and then put to a vote. Rabbitville was out. All right, I'll give you a good name, another settler declared, and that's Possum Trot. What do you think of that? The group thoughtfully set the jug around again, and as time wore on, the name Possum Trot started looking good to them. Understandable, no precise minutes were kept, but one historian's version holds that Kansas City missed being called Possum Trot by a single vote. Matt Reeves reached out to the woman who co-wrote this book with Walt, Tracy Thomas. She said Walt wrote that section of the book and that he was particularly fond of the one-vote possum trot story. So this section 
uh, is full of all sorts of details that we don't have from John McCoy. We don't have from any primary sources. They are compelling details. They're exciting details. They're also unsupported and probably ahistorical details. We don't know that this happened. It might have happened that way. We could imagine them maybe drinking in this area, but we don't know that they put it to a vote. We certainly don't know that they seriously considered it. And in fact, we know the opposite from John McCoy. Which got me thinking, was it actually Walt himself who first told me this story? I can't remember. So Walt was the great storyteller who was getting people engaged in Kansas City history. And for that, our community will be forever grateful to him and for his contributions. And then it's my job as sort of the stick in the mud historian to push my glasses up onto the brow of my nose and go, well, actually, there's no uh, evidence that it was ever one vote. Walt was a man of integrity and an accomplished journalist. He was a champion of Kansas City history, but he also loved a good story. I reached out to Monroe Dodd, who used to co-host the history series on The Walt Bodine Show. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Monroe. It's so good to see you. He also helped co-write Walt's biography after he had lost his eyesight and was up in years. I just think the Possum Trot story, I've, I've thought this for a long time, is a little too interesting to be true. But Monroe doesn't blame Walt completely for this wild tale. He also points a finger at John McCoy. Toward the end of his life was thought to have had some dementia as he faded away. Monroe is also a retired newspaper guy. He worked for the Kansas City Star for years. And he reminds me that newspapers were still a pretty new thing in Kansas City in 1880, when John McCoy finally wrote about his take on what had happened at one Eyed Ellis's cabin back almost 40 years before in 1838. And uh, little columns he'd do, little, almost like little letters to the editor. I remember the, this, and I remember that, and those things. Can't yeah, remember the name of what It's Tales of an Old Timer. Yes, very good. Tales of an Old Timer. And um, I think the old timer got a little fuzzier as time went by way back then. Today, in an era where it seems like everybody is documenting almost every part of their lives on social media, it's wild to think that one written published memory over 40 years after the fact from a self-described old-timer is all we have to go off of here. And I guess it's possible Possum Trot and Port Fonda could have been the case, but I sure wouldn't want to write it as, as the gospel truth. <laughs> we know that truth and facts matter. But we may never know exactly what happened at One-Eyed Ellis's cabin. Gosh, is that part even true? Either way, that's why documentation and telling stories is so important. Because as we know, things get twisted over time. And memories change and important details can easily be forgotten or changed. Ten people can experience one event ten different ways. We don't know Abraham Fonda's version of the story, or old Squire Bowers, but Matt points out there is this thing about good stories, whether they're slightly embellished, completely factual, or an utter fabrication. Stories are super sticky, and they stay with you. And factoids, not so much. Uh, they tend to uh, uh, slip out. So uh, even after you hear somebody say, oh, that's not exactly right, uh, you'll still probably remember the story and the moral of that story more so than the actual fact. So what is the moral of this story, even if it's not completely true, that Kansas City may have almost been called Possum Trot? 
For Helen, who submitted the question at the start, it was all about civic engagement, a lesson of why it's so important to vote. Every vote counts. That's a good lesson. To me, it gets at this kind of inferiority complex Kansas City might have for itself. Are we telling people that we might have been called possum trot at one time to make ourselves sound more exciting? Or is it coming up when an outsider is trying to make fun of us, like, oh, you almost were called possum trot? Regardless, the fact that we are called Kansas City, and yes, that there are more than one Kansas City, is a big part of our identity. Having to explain it over and over and over again to outsiders who probably don't care is a big part of who we are. It builds character. We're a place proud to be in the middle, at a deep historic intersection where the prairies meet the plains and rivers connect. This is a place that may have never even been close to being called Possum Trot, but it's still a place with a rich, nuanced past, full of stories that are far more complicated and fascinating than many people realize. It's just an intensely interesting place. All these threads of American uh, life and adventure, railroading, cattle, you know, and the, 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 the borders, the frontier, everything, so much went through that. The jazz, the gambling, the heyday, then there's the reaction to that. I mean, there's just, it's endlessly fascinating. And we're going to continue to celebrate and tell those stories here on A People's History of Kansas City. Say Kansas City. I hold it down for the city that I'm at. That's Kansas City boy in the middle of the map, yeah. And I'm KC Stunting. Welcome to the town, homie. You don't want nothing, no. And if you cut me, I would probably bleed. Red, yellow, red, yellow, red, yellow, red, yellow. A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios with the support of the Mid-Continent Public Library. For further reading about Kansas City history, check out the book Kansas City and How It Grew by James A. Shortridge. You can get in touch with us or connect with other fans of the podcast. Join our Facebook group at kcur.org slash people's history group. And if you have feedback or want to share ideas, you can hit me up directly. Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E at kcur.org. We had music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions, Kai Engel, Circus Marcus, and Kansas City's own Irv DeFenom. A special thanks to the Mars Sound Archive for the Walt Bodine Clips and the Missouri Valley Room at the Kansas City Public Library for their amazing archive and online resources. We had help from Mike Russo, Mackenzie Martin, Byron Love, Lisa Rodriguez, Paul Nakatura, Greg Eklund, Ann Knigendorf, Cody Newell, Barb Shelley, Krista Henthorne, and Ronnie Baldwin. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care and thanks for listening.